Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Wednesday, October 14, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. This week, we rebroadcast a voting rights town hall, which was presented by the ACLU on October 14. This town hall features the executive director of the ACLU, Anthony D. Romero, and his discussion with former Attorney General Eric H. Holder, Jr. The topic of discussion is voting in a pandemic, what's at stake for civil liberties, and concrete actions you can take to stay involved through Election Day. During the one-hour town hall, former Attorney General Holder and Director Romero discussed the history of disenfranchisement, particularly for black voters, the ACLU's efforts to expand access to voting by mail in this election, and how we can fight future efforts to suppress the vote by influencing the redistricting process in state jurisdictions. This town hall is moderated by Becky Edwards, Chief Communications Officer at the ACLU. The Alliance Party After Dark would like to emphasize that the ACLU in no way is associated with the Alliance Party, and the rebroadcast of this town hall is not to be interpreted as any endorsement of the Alliance Party by the ACLU. Further, any views expressed by the ACLU in this podcast in no way is related to views, similar or otherwise, expressed by the Alliance Party. In short, this is simply a rebroadcast of content originally broadcast by the ACLU and nothing more. So, without further delay, let's go to the ACLU Town Hall, as recorded on October 14, 2020. Welcome, everyone. My name is Becky Edwards. I'm the Chief Communications Officer at the ACLU, and my pronouns are she, her. We are so pleased with the record number of attendees for this town hall. There are more than 1,500 ACLU card-carrying members and people power super activists gathered here right now. You are fueling the ACLU's fights in the courts, in the legislature, and on the streets. We are thankful for your support and view you as critical partners in the lead up to the election. Before we get into the conversation, I wanted to reflect on what a hard year this has been. COVID-19, the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and countless other Black people at the hands of police has played out in front of our eyes. And the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a legal giant who served as co-founder and the first co-director of the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. With this as context, we cannot emphasize enough what a critical year it is for defending democracy and ensuring a fair and safe vote. So with that, I wanna turn to why we are gathered here together. As a nonpartisan organization, the ACLU's town hall today will focus on the issues at play this election cycle, intersectional issues like voting rights, racial justice, gerrymandering, not specific candidates. We greatly appreciate the questions that you submitted in advance, which will guide today's discussion. Our goals today are to answer those questions that are top of mind, share concrete actions, and hopefully leave you feeling energized. Without further ado, I'd, wel- I'd like to welcome our speakers. Who best to help us accomplish these goals than Eric Holder, the 82nd Attorney General of the United States 
and board member of the National Redistricting Action Fund and the ACLU's National Executive Director, Anthony Romero. All right, as a warm up for you both and to make sure your sound is working, I'd just like to ask you each to state in a single word or maybe two, your state of mind heading into these last few weeks of the election season. First, you AG Holder. Uh, I'd say I'm cautiously optimistic. And you, Anthony? I guess I have, I guess I'm cheating. I have three words. I feel uh, anxious. I do feel excited and cautiously optimistic. I guess it's three right there. And I, I feel ready from an ACLU perspective. So those are the three I would use. Okay, great. Well, now for our first topic, we're going to talk about access to the ballot, especially for Black voters. Many listening in, and certainly you two, have watched the relentless gutting of voting rights protections. We have a one-minute video to frame this issue. It was created in the run-up to the 2016 election, but the issues it presents, disenfranchisement, particularly of Black voters, are all very much alive and present today. So let's run the clip. It was 2016. I had three pieces of ID on me was not allowed to vote. We supposed to move on, not go back. Several new voting laws recently enacted. This photo ID law in Wisconsin says, you don't have what you need, you're not invited. This democracy, this isn't for you. Three U.S. states deprive convicted felons of the right to vote. You're excommunicated from society for the rest of your life. I shouldn't have to sue the Secretary of State in order to be able to vote. It is a nationwide plan here to make voting harder. Getting reports of a lot of people who thought they were registered but didn't appear on the rolls. This is the moment when our ancestors marched. America is a nation of second chances. One of America's most fundamental rights is under attack. We both be allowed to vote. This video comes from an ACLU doc documentary called Take a Vote. It feels almost like a thriller. I, my first question is for you, A.G. Holder. Can you explain why, why the villains in this horror movie keep popping up to institute re restrictive voter ID laws, to close polling places, and to issue voter purges? Well, you know, there's been essentially, like a, I think, a two-pronged attack on the right to vote over the and so that power that that gerrymandering gave various state legislatures was used to come up with these unnecessary photo ID laws. It was the backbone for the foundation of the unnecessary voter purges and allowed uh, the closure of, of polling places around the country. And then part two is the Supreme Court's decision, wrong decision, I mean, really wrong decision in the Shelby County case in 2013 to gut the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That took power away from the Justice Department um, to block a lot of these voter suppression efforts no longer had to deal with the question of preclearance. And so these discriminatory photo ID laws, uh, closing of polling places, voter purges, all went um, unopposed. And, and the states that have been most aggressive are almost always the ones that are most the most gerrymandered. Texas, North Carolina, Wisconsin, to name um, just a few. And Anthony, I, I know the ACLU intervened in Shelby, and I know we litigated right after the decision when states like Texas tried to introduce new anti-voter laws. 
But fast forwarding today, what kind of nefarious voter suppression laws are popping up and how is the ACLU responding? Uh, I think the Attorney General is quite right. It's, it's both of those dynamics at play that have given us this very difficult landscape. And the, the loss of Shelby County in that Supreme Court case, which was really a, a, a gut punch, you know, a body blow, if you will, to voting rights enforcement, where we took we lost and the Supreme Court took away this really important uh, accountability mechanism that the four states were allowed to enact any changes to the electoral systems in certain states that had a history of discrimination, they would have to pre-clear. Um, I, I, the Attorney General really is a lawyer. I just play one on TV, so I'm just trying to <laughs> channel my, my thimble full of knowledge, sir, so that my other folks who are not trained in the law could follow your, your, your pearls of wisdom. And I think when they took away the pre-clearance procedures and it gave the states run of the, run of the field, saying just because you discriminated once doesn't mean you're discriminating today. I, I don't recall, sir, the, the author of that opinion. Was that Roberts was in the majority? Yeah, was Chief okay. Justice Roberts. That's what I thought. And, and it was really disingenuous. I mean, those of us in the civil rights community were just scratching our heads like, how could you not believe that discrimination still continues? in these jurisdictions to this day. But that's what they said. They said, you can come, you, we're not gonna require you to pre-clear these election systems. You can bring challenges as applied, which are still some of the ways in which we're bringing some of these challenges. In fact, we've filed almost 22 recent lawsuits that bring more as applied challenges under the Voting Rights Act and different, different permutations. But losing pre-clear, their pre-clearance accountability mechanism was really uh, devastating. And to give one example, Becky, it's playing out in Texas, which the Attorney General just referenced as one of the three states where it's playing out. You know, with the, with the governor in uh, Texas, who right. recently enacted uh, an executive order uh, saying that he'll allow a drop box, but only one per county in the whole state of Texas, when you have some enormous counties here. Right. Where, you know, it's not like and in Pennsylvania, there's yeah. a fight that I think the attorney general knows better than I about drop boxes generally. But in Texas, they're saying we'll allow one per county. Now, before, if, if, if Section 5 had been in place, I, I believe, sir, correct me definitely if I'm wrong, because I don't want to give my folks a, a bum steer, that, that those processes, those changes would have had to be pre-cleared with the Justice Department. And now that they're not under the 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 accountability mechanism, they can do what they wish. And that is, in fact, what is playing out in many of these jurisdictions. And I think the loss of Shelby County is, the, the, the loss in the Shelby County case was a devastating one. And one that I think we need to fix, you know, if there is a new administration and if there's a potential for moving more affirmative uh, legislation through the Senate, we're going to have to fix that which we lost in the Shelby County case. Did I get anything wrong or anything you need to correct me on, sir? With, you know, don't be shy. My folks need to be, they <laughs> no, need to no, have no. the right information, sir. So. No, I, you, you did real well there. I think I gave you an A on a law school exam. That was, uh, you know, what I'd say was that that Supreme Court case, the Shelby County case, I think will really go down as one of the worst in the yeah. Supreme Court's yeah. history. Uh, you know, the Supreme Court said, well, you know, we're going to make the determination that um, the, the coverage formula is not right. You know, the levels of discrimination in various states is not right. After, you know, Congress had gone through extensive hearings and made findings, thousands of pages of 
of, of documents, um, you know, countless numbers of people testifying. I never quite understood how the Supreme Court could make that leap from, all right, Congress made these findings, made a determination that the Voting Rights Act needs to be, um, you know, continued for another five years. And they said, well, wrong. You know, well, what research have you done other than, you know, what your gut tells you? Um, and that's what, you know, we saw in the dissent, um, a, a great dissent by Justice Ginsburg that I think will either lead to ultimately the overturning of the Shelby County case or is, is at least in part a guide for what I hope Congress will do, as you're saying, Anthony, which is to pass a new and enhanced um, Voting Rights Act that would not only cover uh, those old covered states, but would cover the nation, um, you know, nationwide, because the reality is the voter problems that we see are not restricted to those old, those covered states in the old South. We're now worried about this in Ohio, in, in Wisconsin, um, you know, out in, in the West. We are, this, these are things, these are problems that are, are nationwide in scope and not res restricted to one region. And, and maybe before we move on to, from this topic, because you both said that you were feeling optimistic and somewhat positive, either of you want to mention some of the positive efforts right in the works right now for voter expansion and efforts to protect poll monitors? Well, you know, I think one of the things that I think the thing that is the foundation for my sense of optimism is the determination of the American people to push through all the obstacles that are being thrown at them. As Anthony says, you know, one, really one drop box for Harris County, which is bigger than I understand, you know, Delaware and Rhode Island. I mean, that's, that's, that's absurd. Um, but all right, so that's fine. We had record turnout um, in Harris County yesterday, record turnout in Texas, same thing in, in Georgia. I think people are going to push through um, all of these, these hurdles. And then I think what we need to understand is that these restrictive measures are not set in stone. If we are successful at the state legislative level, we can overturn, we can change the laws and do away with restrictive photo ID, have more drop boxes. Um, just, just because, you know, those who got power in 2011 and as a result of um, the, the Shelby County case have done things in a certain way doesn't mean that with electoral success, we can't change this stuff. And that's what we have to do, change, change for the better. I, I completely agree. Uh, Becky, and I think the Attorney General is exactly right in both his optimism and, and, and pointing away to the future. The fact that there is this much interest in this election, um, I mean, this is probably the hardest election to administer since the, uh, the national election in 1864 in the middle of the Civil War, where you have now fewer polling places and fewer polling workers and great voter interest and a pandemic and a president that's trying to uh, call out folks to serve, to intimidate voters at the polling places, and yet the turnout, the voter interest that the Attorney General was referencing. I mean, yesterday, I think that the numbers I saw uh, were around 11 million or so people casting a vote at this point, which is just a phenomenal multiplier by what we saw four years ago. And I think the fact that I remember always lamenting um, growing up, and voting rights was my passion. That's what I wrote my, um, you know, my, my equivalent of my thesis at, at Stanford Law School was on voting rights. So it's always been the subject I most cared about because I figured if you get voting rights correct, you can fix LGBT rights, you can fix immigrants' rights, you can fix reproductive rights. For me, voting rights is the door through which you right. fix all of the other issue areas that the ACLU also cares about. But the, the place I always lamented was just the lack of, do, of voter interest on voting. And it's just like, what, 40 percent, 30 percent? 
you know, sometimes in the teens in terms of down ticket races and off cycle elections. And it was just, it just, and for someone who's a kind of a voting rights zealot like me, that always depressed me. It's just like, yeah. what's happening here? It's atrophying our kind of our, our public engagement on voting and democracy is dying on the vine. Hell no. That's what's that right now. People are standing in line. It, it is incredible. I watch these. I turn on the TV. I turn the volume down just so I can see the pictures. Yeah. Right? I don't want to hear the commentators. But I get I get emotional watching the people who are standing in the cars, standing on lines, eleven hours, and it reminds me of my grandmother, my father, who did everything they needed to do to make sure they voted, and that can kind of re reinstill this kind of this passion that voting matters. Uh, and then I think the opportunities for making policy changes are, are enormous. So I, I am, I'm equally hopeful of the following. I'm glad I'm not the only one attorney general. I'm glad I'm not. Um, <laughs> You're not alone. You're not, not alone. alone. No, not at all, sir. All right, that's good. All right, so let's turn to uh, an obstacle that you've referenced, Anthony. I'm sure this time last year, a few of us anticipated the special circumstances that would be in front of us voting in a pandemic. So that would be in front of us voting in a pandemic. So Anthony, this next question, I'm gonna start with you because we got a lot of questions. We had a lot, lot of questions coming from ACLU supporters about how COVID-19 adds just another layer to you know, the complicated scenario of this year's election season. So I'd like to play for you a question that came in from an ACLU donor. Hi, I'm Jenny Rosenthal, Chair of the Board of the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. I've been a donor to the ACLU since 2017. I remember Cecile Richards saying after the 2016 presidential election that if you give to one single organization, in addition to Planned Parenthood, give to the ACLU. Well, I heeded her advice and have become an annual donor and will continue to make this a priority gift moving forward. This further struck a chord after watching the film The Fight which follows several legal cases ACLU lawyers battle during the Trump administration and where, in one case, Bridget Amiri fights tirelessly and successfully to allow a pregnant 17-year-old undocumented immigrant woman being held in a Texas immigrant shelter to get a desired abortion. By the way, Bridget's moot court walk-on music is I Won't Back Down by Tom Petty, and it's my anthem as well. And believe me, has played on repeat a number of times these past few years. Additionally, the Rosenthal Family Foundation is supporting the salary of an organizer in my hometown of Cincinnati to work with the Ohio team to introduce game-changing legislation around bail reform. So my question is this, how are we preparing to make sure mail-in votes get counted and are not discarded for frivolous matters, i.e. the hanging chads of 2000? And how will we combat the voter suppression we are certain will happen in multiple forms on election day? Thank you very much. I love her, love her. Okay, met, Anthony, you never, get to take this one first. Never, never met her before, wonderful. And thank Chris Cecile Richards, who was also one of my heroes, um, with the Attorney General, the two of them, democracies in good, in good shape with the two of them out there. It's like the Avengers. I think it's, it's, it goes to my point about ready, being ready. And it's not just the ACLU being ready, but I think it's the, the broader voting rights landscape is very much ready. And the Attorney General has created this great nonprofit that's also very much engaged on these issues. But there's a number of organizations, including his and ours, the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, 
um, the League of Women Voters, and, and it's the and the actions at the states. And that's why it's really important that the folks on this call understand that those are those organizations that have the ability or the bandwidth, state offices or chapters or volunteers to get proximate at the state level are going to be critical to making sure that the mail-in ballots or the absentee ballots or some of the shenanigans that might play out at the polls in this COVID uh, pandemic uh, really get addressed because you need to have boots on the ground in those states. I'll give you, for us, we really prioritize our battleground states. Um, we care about the right to vote everywhere and we're encouraging all of our members in every state and all of our offices to be engaged with this election um, in a way that we had not before. Uh, partly, we can thank Donald Trump for the fact that our membership has grown from 400,000 members. When the Attorney General was in office and President Obama was president, we had 400,000 card-carrying members. And the one good thing that Donald Trump gave us <laughs> is he quadrupled our membership. So we got 2 million people across the country, dues-paying, card-carrying members. And that means that our C4, our political arm, is the biggest it's ever been in 100 years. And that allows our C4 in every state to really monitor what's going on at the state. And the battleground states are critical. In Georgia, uh, Andrew Young's daughter, Andrea Young, is our head of our, of our office in Georgia. And they're focused on poll watching. They're bringing litigation to make sure that, that the requirement to have stamps on ballots is challenged. And they are really playing a kind of making sure that if there are issues in terms of absentee votes that are not being counted, that they're there at the ready to jump into court. The big state that we've also prioritized a great deal of resources is Michigan. Michigan mm -hmm. is a state where we spent almost two and a half million dollars in 20, uh, uh, 2018 to pass a ballot referenda that we wrote. We got the signatures with our volunteers and then we paid the money to get the media and the outcome behind it to enact a series of uh, voting reforms, you know, vote by mail, absentee ballot, same day voter registration, a suite of electoral reforms to expand the right to the franchise in Michigan. And we passed it with the largest margin of any ballot referendum in the state of Michigan. As a result of that initiative and that investment of, I think the best money we've ever spent, almost two and a half million dollars and a lot of blood, sweat and tears from us and others, all in about $5 million and there were others who helped with this. It wasn't just the ACLU, even though we were the biggest uh, force behind it. So far, the number I know is that 2.7 million people in Michigan have requested absentee ballots. In the, in the last primary, uh, the August primary, 1.6 million Michiganders voted absentee. And in the last cycle, all in, uh, 1.3 million people voted absentee. So from 1.3 to 2.7 is a result of that ballot referenda. Remember Donald Trump won that state by 10, 11,000 votes. So the ability to expand the franchise, this has been a long game. This has been patient capital. The idea that we expand the right to the vote through ballot referenda, through deploying people by spending C4 dollars. And now turning folks out, and that's what we're going to have to make sure we do state by state. And again, our goal as a nonpartisan organization, I've got to be clear because my general counsel is probably on the line, you know, the one to get his hair on fire, is that we're not trying to unelect or elect anybody. 
We're trying to make sure that everyone is able to cast a meaningful vote. And when cast, it's meaningfully counted, whoever yeah. they are, whoever they vote for. And that's, I think, what's playing out in Michigan. That's hopefully what others, other places. Attorney General, what else would you add? I, 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 I'm sorry I took so long, but I got very excited about Michigan because it's one of my passions. Yeah, the, and maybe um, Attorney General, as you're thinking about this, perhaps you can set the vote by mail because I think people who are anticipating a nightmare like hanging chads are thinking about sort of this, you know, they don't have confidence in the vote by mail context. So maybe you could say some words about that and also how we can ensure that our ballots are being counted. Yeah, well, you know, what I'd say is to give ourselves some, some historical context here. We have conducted elections during some trying times in the past, both world wars, uh, the Civil War, the pandemic of 1918. And in each instance, you know, we've counted up the votes, uh, we've sworn in um, new leaders. And I actually think this, uh, this, is where, this is where my cautious optimism comes from. I think that's gonna happen again, you know, this year. And the idea that mail ballots create massive fraud is frankly nonsense. It is inconsistent with all of the studies that, that have been done. I mean, there are a handful of states um, that conduct elections by mail, um, you know, either fully or exclusively. Oregon, Utah, um, Colorado, Florida uses a lot of, of you know, mail-in votes. And it's been shown to be safe, secure, and interestingly, it increases turnout. There are really no good studies that show that Democrats, the Attorney General, if I'm the only one, or Republicans, but it does show that turnout does increase. So I want to encourage everyone listening um, to make sure that you have a plan to vote this year. Don't get up, you know, on the uh, the morning of November 3rd and say, oh, I think I'm going to go vote. No, make a plan. If you're going to vote by mail, get your ballot back quickly, make sure it is received. In some states, you can actually track, you know, track your ballot. And if you can safely vote in person, well, then go do that. But if all possible, don't wait until election day to decide, you know, how you're going to vote. Um, do it, uh, do it early. And I actually think, as I said, the systems are in place. The experience um, is there for vote by mail votes to be counted, uh, to be treated in an appropriate way. And systems, I think, are in place for you know early vote um, as well. I'd like to have as many people have their ballots done in whatever form before November 3rd, um, you know, as is possible. Yeah, and I, I want to check that we have Anthony back because it seems like we lost him I for a second. Here. No, okay. I'm here. I'm here. Waving your hand, that's great. That's a good sign. I was, I was coming up with like impromptu dance segment. No, no, no. I, they, I, I, I was in some Zoom limbo, but I'm back. <laughs> okay, good. Um, before we move on from this segment, Anthony, I did want to ask whether you want to um, give a nod to the Let People Vote platform, or if you want to say something about the ACLU's game plan for um, Tuesday, November 3rd, yeah. and the well, hours and days that follow. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you for reminding me, because there's so much going on that sometimes I lose track of it, and I get excited about the state of Michigan. I forget how to help people outside of Michigan learn and, and, and get access to it. The ACLU, and there are a lot of other nonprofits who have also done this, but you can definitely go to our website. You can find others as well. We have a Let People Vote website, which we have spent a great deal of time and energy to put in one place where people can get information on the, their voting in their respective jurisdictions. The deadlines, the times, the dates for early voting, the procedures, it's a way to make it all very, very user-friendly at their fingertips for each and every single state. And if, if for some reason you don't get all the answers to your questions, it also gives you an ability to kind of be in touch with us. 
and to ask questions of us. It's again, our effort to try to make sure that leave no one person behind. Everybody in to this pool that we call democracy at this election when everything matters most. And there are a number of other great websites also the, for the parties, they have their own and, and you can definitely find uh, ours or others. Uh, the, the thing I will also add is that for election day, you would hope and you expect the ACLU to be ready for uh, what, comes, uh, what comes our way. Um, we are clear-eyed optimists, but we are also pragmatists. And having lived through many of the challenges we saw on you know, the hanging chat issue in Florida, some of the litigation that the Attorney General references was our litigation in Wisconsin and elsewhere on kind of voter suppression and the photo ID laws, we, we get ready. That's what lawyers do. They're we're type A personalities. And so we, are, we have drafts of legal papers to jump into court on election day if there are shenanigans at the polling places, if there are efforts to intimidate voters, if there are too many long lines uh, at the polling places to be able to jump into court and to ask courts, uh, judges, to mandate for an extension of voting hours, uh, to document whatever other efforts to make sure that if uh, the that the mail-in or the absentee ballots are, are are properly being counted, we have a we within the ACLU we have a group of individuals. We have great litigators and we have great advocates and we have great comm staff who work with Becky. My favorite group of people are the data wonks. Right? These are these are statisticians big data types of folks, right, who are computer programmers. They're running a, a whole series of data projects to kind of heat map the, the tracking of absentee ballots and whether or not they're being counted or discarded, what numbers from what jurisdictions, so they can troubleshoot in real time saying, hey, you might want to sue in this one county because they're dropping a larger percentage of the absentee ballots than would otherwise be the case and that we've seen elsewhere. So to be able to kind of get data in real time uh, and to have these data wonks kind of give advice to the lawyers about where to run to to drop the papers is what we've been in the process of doing. And of course, because we have an office in every state and we have the legal capacity of lawyers in every state, drafting these kind of model papers so that my local office and, you know, Wisconsin or Georgia or North Carolina or South Carolina can basically write in the names of plaintiffs and say, this is the problem. These are the, these are the issues we're trying to address and then jump into court in real time is how we're trying to anticipate. And then there are all these, these chaos scenarios, which the attorney general and I were just talking about before, like the what ifs, the ones that keep a lot of people up at night, like what if the electors are run away or their efforts to, cut off the counting of absentee votes. And I think there's a lot of other great litigation groups. The parties themselves are involved with it. Uh, the attorney general can say more about that uh, than I can. Um, yeah. we're, we're prohibited from coordinating with any party because of campaign finance rules. And so it's a little bit more challenging for us. But, but I know that the, the, they're working in their own lane and they'll be paying very close attention to it. So I think there's a readiness. This goes back to my ready yeah. kind of adjective. I think there's a readiness yeah. that we haven't seen before. And, and A.G. Holder, I've heard you speak very plainly and clearly about um, people having to adjust their expectations this election cycle for sort of the counting process. And can you say a word or two about that? 
Yeah, I, I want people to be sensitized to the possibility that we might not know on the night of November the 3rd or even into the early morning of November the 4th who the winner is. And that's okay. You know, it is better for us to count every vote, uh, to have an accurate vote count as opposed to something that happens where we, um, you know, we, we emphasize speed as opposed to, to accuracy. And we also have to remember that um, this is not something that is new to us. In the 2000 election, we didn't know who the winner of the presidency was for like, I don't know, 25, 30 days, something like that. Uh, and the nation got through it. You know, we ended up with with a president. Um, I, I don't think I, I don't you know, again, I'm cautiously optimistic. I don't think we're going to have to go through that process, but it may take with the unbelievable um, number of votes that we're going to have coming in through the mail. And in some states, you can't open those ballots until the night of the election. So it may take, you know, a couple of days to count them. But that's OK. Don't listen to people who will be saying, well, that means that, you know, there's a lot of fraud involved here um, or, or that the, the count is not going to be reflective of what people actually did. No, we just 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 become push back against those who would try to, you know, so um, dissension, uh, raise people's uh, levels of anxiety. It's going to be just fine. We're going to be just fine. Oh my gosh. I think I might have to get a little soundbite of that and use that as my like meditative mantra <laughs> for the next 20 days. That was so soothing. Okay. We are going to uh, switch gears a little bit because you both have referred to the fact that voting is a gateway for um, other issues, right? It's the first step in making sure that we achieve other ends in this Republic. So um, beyond the act of voting, let's turn to the issues at stake this, this election. And AG Holder, I'm gonna start with you, but before we um, turn to you to answer, we get a question from an ACLU people power activist with a great name, I might add. So let's run that clip. Hello, Mr. Holder. First, thank you for your work. It is an honor and privilege to be here. My name is Becky Dagman and I live in Cary, Illinois near Chicago. I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin where I was taught to believe that all people have the same worth in God's eyes. To believe otherwise is to gate our shared humanity. My support of the ACLU began decades ago. I've become more active helping fight injustices from Guantanamo Bay to voting suppression, inhumane treatment of immigrants, to racism in our criminal justice system. George Floyd's death and similar tragic events to me are clear evidence of systemic racism in our society that creates and also is perpetuated by a racist justice system. One perpetuates the other. I have two questions that I'd like you to speak today. Speak to today. First, what is the role of elected officials like prosecutors, sheriffs, and city council members in reforming a racist criminal justice system? Second, what actions can ordinary citizens, everyday citizens like me and those here today, take to bring about a truly fair and just system for all people? Thank you. Hello. All right, A.G. Holder, I think we missed the beginning, but the only thing you missed was that her name was Becky. So you got the, you got the gist, but if you need me to repeat the question, I can. No, that's fine. You know, I, I, that's a, I think it's a great question. You know, and what I'd say is that, you know, I understand that people get excited about the top of the ticket. You know, of course, the presidency matters. This is an existential presidential election. I get that. But I also hope that people... Um, 
are starting to wake up about how, how these so-called down ballot races um, matter so, so much. You know, oftentimes it is the people who are, um, you know, closest to you in your community that have the most power over your day-to-day -day life. You know, um, the president, Congress, even the attorney general can push for laws um, that'll make our criminal justice system more fair. And they, and they should, and they should. But their role is, in a lot of ways, it, it's limited. You know, the, the threshold for the Federal Department of Justice to bring cases in police-involved shootings uh, is incredibly high. I mean, that's one of the things I think that, need, that needs to be changed. So it is the, it is the, um, you know, it is the district attorney, the sheriff, the city council, uh, and other people at the local level who are going to make sure that justice is done in your um, community. And so I think focusing on those down-ballot races and making sure that people who actually make decisions on, on criminal justice matters in your community are in fact the right people for the jobs. And so I would urge people this November and every November um, thereafter uh, to focus on those, those important down-ballot races. And you will then get you know, a criminal justice system. You're much more likely to get a criminal justice system that you want, one that is consistent, one that is fair, uh, one that treats, treats, people, um, treats people equitably. Again, the federal government matters, but on a day-to-day -day basis, most of the decisions that affect um, criminal justice reform are done at the, uh, at the state and local level. Anthony, do you wanna jump in on this one? Yeah, I'm just encouraged because um, to hear both, uh, and I agreed with you about how the Attorney General has this soothing ability to just take my blood pressure down a bit. So maybe I can call my doctor and say, we can kind of <laughs> skip the restrictions on my diet. If I could just talk to the Attorney General every week, I think I can bring my blood pressure down. But also the reaffirming uh, direction for the ACLU. In the last several years, uh, the last four, um, with this growth of our C4 and with the growth of our activists across the country, we, for the first time in our 100 years, have focused on the substantive issues in down-ballot races. Um, some of our affiliates have always been engaged on some of these issues, but from the national office perspective, we really are mapping out where we think we can make a difference on local races that have nothing to do with the, the top of the ticket, the, the presidency or the Senate or the House. And we have prioritized those down-ticket races uh, that have real civil liberties and civil rights implications. So they are uh, have the focus, for instance, on house districts in Arizona, where you have uh, at play anti-reproductive rights issues or some of the issues around uh, anti-immigrant uh, programs. We've been focusing on uh, Maricopa County uh, and the the uh, the sheriff there, um, partly because you know there's a long history in Maricopa County, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, and we've sued him a thousand times over the last 20 years. Um, President Trump gave him the the pardon on the contempt proceeding that we secured, and rather than just fight these sheriffs um, or these U.S. Uh, these uh, these prosecutors in court, let's educate the voters about what's at play. Uh, same thing with the mayor's race in, in Miami, um, the sheriff's race in Cobb County and Gwinnett County in Georgia, uh, the sheriff's race in Charleston, uh, South Carolina. Uh, we're looking at the governor's race, just educating voters on the governor's race in Montana. 
because it has a real reproductive freedom component. And usually, you know, when you try to get folks who don't want to vote, they say, oh, what does my vote matter? It doesn't really matter. It's, you know, I'm one of hundreds of millions of voters. If you can show them that their vote really does matter locally on issues that they are passionate about, that for very small margins of voters, you can make an, an enormous difference about immigration enforcement or the arrests around marijuana possession um, or you know, some of the more draconian law and order efforts by sheriffs. If you could show them that that really makes a difference, oh my God, then you could really, that you motivate people to turn out and they see that their vote has, you know, has a real impact. And if you're focused on down ticket races, that might have up ticket impact in jurisdictions that matter, like South Carolina or Arizona or uh, Florida, then isn't that just even all to the better? So yeah. um, that's how we've begun to think about this work. And the final thing I'll just say, I'm sorry, Becky, I'm, I just, I'm going on too long, but you can come. Ballot, ballot referenda, critically important to show folks that there's another way for them to be involved in politics that has an impact on issues they care about. Affirmative action in California is on the ballot. For folks who are on this call, you gotta get behind Prop 16, for sure. There's predatory uh, same-day lending in Nebraska that we're trying to knock out, critically important, within striking distance. And in yeah. Oklahoma, I think the most powerful criminal justice reform ballot referenda that we've been able to put together is on the ballot in Oklahoma. So those three states, for sure, ballot referenda can make a difference and turn voters out on issues that they care about. And, and I would say, Anthony, the burden isn't only on you to remember all the, all the significant races and actions because we have aclu.org backslash voter, where if people want to do more than vote, they can. there's a text team there, there's a phone team there, they will tell you how your enthusiasm and your interest in being active can be channeled to a, to a productive outcome. All right, I'm gonna move on to the final theme because I know this one is near and dear to your heart, AG Holder, and it's looking a little bit further into the future. We're gonna talk about redistricting. Okay. And um, if the pandemic is one layer, then there's another that's deeply rooted in our history. And frankly, white supremacy, which is how maps are drawn, um, you've called gerrymandering the biggest rigged system in America. And so here's a question from a young supporter. Hello, my name is Alana Perez and I'm from Long Island, New York. I have been a big supporter of the ACLU for several years now because I grew up learning about the amazing work the ACLU has done. This past summer, I actually had the opportunity to attend the ACLU's Summer Advocacy Institute and that opportunity has given me more access to knowledge and resources I needed to become a true advocate. This upcoming election, I am going to be a first time voter. And as a student at Boston University, I have learned about gerrymandering through several history and political science courses. But I was wondering if you can walk me through the effect of gerrymandering on voting rights and the Supreme Court's decision that led to a distinction between racial and political gerrymandering. Thank you. All right, we need to sign her up at the uh, National Democratic Redistricting Committee. She sounds like she's ready. Um, you know, people always ask me, you know, what's gerrymandering? And, you know, you can get into these wonky explanations about it and redistricting and all that. Let, let's start with kind of a bottom line, okay? Gerrymandering is cheating. Uh, it's the process by which, you know, politicians 
hand select their voters to lock in power for themselves. It's, it's a process where you know, politicians are choosing their voters instead of citizens choosing who their representatives are going to be. That's not the way our system is supposed to work. Uh, and it's done in a lot of times by what we call cracking and packing. You either group like-minded people into a safe district or you split them up to dilute their, um, their voting power. Uh, an example of, of cracking, and this, is, this, is, this really happened. Uh, in, in North Carolina, a line was literally drawn down the center of North Carolina A&T's campus, you know, historically black college. Uh, and they cracked the campus into two and diluted the voting power of the students at the country's largest um, HBCU. And kids on in a dorm on one side of the street were in one district, on the other side of the street, they were in another district. And they did that after the combined power uh, worried the people who were in power that uh, unless they did that, a couple of Republican legislators might have lost their, their seats. And over the past decade, there have been a number of attempts to have you know, federal courts put a limit on partisan gerrymandering. And the, the Supreme Court finally came down with a decision in, in 2019 in a case called uh, Ruchko. Rucho versus Common Cause, uh, and their decision was, you know, unfortunately and but unsurprising this day, uh, these days, it was a disaster for um, for voting rights. The court essentially said that partisan gerrymandering was detrimental to voting rights. I mean, Chief Justice wrote said, yes, partisan gerrymandering is bad. It's not a good thing for our democracy. Not a good thing for voting rights. But that federal courts were going to close their doors to those kinds of cases. I mean, I really think about that. The court acknowledged the harmful impact of partisan gerrymandering, but then said, we're not gonna leave ourselves open to be a potential um, remedy. Well, there are, however, you know, other legal means for us to fight for um, fair maps and to fight partisan gerrymandering. Um, the Supreme Court has in recent years overturned a number of bad maps that were racial gerrymanders. Um, and there the court has said they will consist, they, they will still keep the federal courts open um, to racial gerrymandering cases. Um, we want a racial gerrymandering case so, uh, about the House of Delegates map in Virginia about a week before that bad Supreme Court um, decision. And we can also still bring partisan gerrymandering cases uh, in the state courts. There are a number of state constitutions that actually have um, um, you know, stronger voting rights protections than the U.S. Constitution, if you can believe that. And we've successfully challenged maps in North Carolina um, through, the, uh, through the state courts. And so we will continue to fight racial gerrymandering cases in the states as well as in the federal courts, and we will fight partisan gerrymandering cases um, in the state courts. And, and A.G. Holder, before I um, let Anthony jump in on this one, I wanted to ask if you could describe the work of All on the Line and how our ACLU supporters can plug in. Yeah, All on the Line is our, our 501c4 organization. It's our advocacy arm. And that is the, um, it's our, our grassroots advocacy campaign that's getting people engaged in the whole redistricting process. And one of the things that happened in 2011 was that politicians drew maps in secret. I mean, literally under lock and key in states like Wisconsin. All on the Line is about forcing um, some transparency, some account accountability on the process. Uh, in, in states that have citizen-led commissions, we're, we're, we're encouraging people to, uh, you know, sit on those commissions or show up at public hearings in states where the legislatures draw the maps. We're going to let them know what, that the people are, are watching, you know, what it is they're, they're doing. You know, I think people too often underestimate the power that they have to bring about um, um, a change, especially at the local level. You better believe that your state representative is going to notice if a bunch of his or her constituents start showing up demanding fair maps. So if you're interested in learning more, you know, go to 
allonthelineorg allonthelineorg and sign your citizen commitment to, to get involved in, in the fight and be a part of this, um, this grassroots effort to make sure that um, we have a fair redistricting process in, um, in 2021. That's great. And, and Anthony, um, how is the ACLU involved in the topic of redistricting? I, I think it, it's a key issue for us. And the Attorney General and his organization are really the leading premier organization on redistricting and the, both racial and partisan gerrymandering. Uh, we're glad to be partners with you, Attorney General, on that important work. You know, the ACLU, in, in many respects, I think when the Supreme Court was considering two partisan gerrymandering cases, it was one out of Maryland. And what was the other state, sir? I don't remember. It was was Maryland and and Wisconsin. Right. And in the Wisconsin case, it was the Republicans gerrymandering the Democrats. And I think the Maryland case was the Democrats gerrymandering the Republicans. Right. And we filed a brief in both. Right. Saying that that gerrymandering is cheating for no matter what party is the one doing it. And I think that's... That's, this, that's our sweet spot. That's what we like. We like to call balls and strikes no matter who's involved. The fact is, I think Republicans do a lot more of the gerrymandering because of their control of the state houses, but the attorney general knows this far better than I. For us, at this point, that we have two things that are engaged on the redistricting where we're taking the attorney general's lead. Is one, the census is the key raw data that's going to be used to make the, the redistricting and reapportionment happen. And we've been litigating to make sure that they don't try to water down the numbers of this census uh, in a way that would then give preference to certain states um, and then disadvantage, especially those states with large minority populations or immigrant populations. So we won that case in the Supreme Court. Dale Ho, our director of Voting Rights Project, was co-counsel on that case, argued down the court, got Justice Roberts. We won that case. We really celebrated it. And then we turn around this year where they're still saying the shenanigans are still fast and furious coming on. No offense, sir. I didn't mean to, that was completely a Freudian slip. Uh, but it was uh, coming out of the, um, the Trump administration where they're trying to say that they want to discount the number of undocumented immigrants in the final numbers that Wilbur Ross and the Commerce Department present to the president and then that the president certifies, basically shaving the number of undocumented immigrants off, shrinking the number, the population numbers in states like New York, Texas, meaning that they'll have smaller representations in Congress. So we're litigating that again. We're now back in this, I I think uh, we'll hear from the Supreme Court next week. Uh, Our case out of New York is the first one out of the gate. And we should hear if the court is going to either rule just on the papers or grant, grant review, um, but that we should hear maybe as early as next week. So we're really fighting everything we can to make sure that the census has integrity and that folks are counted the way they should be. So that then when we get to reapportionment and redistricting, we have the best data possible reflecting the actual population numbers. And the second piece, which is is definitely taking a page out of the Attorney General's playbook, is helping uh, our local affiliates and some of the community-based groups draw maps. That same kind of data group, the, mm-hmm. the wonky kind of statisticians, big data experts. We have one demographer um, who's uh, been uh, an expert on redistricting is working with my local offices to kind of run 
the data so that we can help local groups run their own maps and be a part of that process. Redistricting should be more democratically engaged, small d, not capital D, but more, uh, more engaged with more citizens. And so those are the two places that we're, we're, we're glad to play a role, but the, really the leadership role is really with the attorney general and with his institute. Um, and we're, we're glad to be in, in, in the back of your parade, sir. And, and before we close out this section, and, and Attorney General, we did flash on the screen, I don't know if you caught it, the, the website for allontheline.org backslash citizen commitment. Can you give the um, folks on the line a sense of timing? So you ask people to you know, get engaged, start showing up. When does that mobilization need to happen? Well, we need to start mobilizing now in anticipation of the processes that will take place across the country um, next year. I mean, as Anthony said, and this is really important, we need to have a fair and accurate census. That's kind of the foundation for a fair redistricting um, process. But the states will actually go into the redistricting process a couple of months into um, 2021. So we're getting everybody ready now. Uh, we want to have as many people involved as we can now so we can plan um, in anticipation of the process that will go on through the um, year, starting probably in around February or, or so of, uh, of next year. Okay. Well, this has been an amazing conversation and I'm afraid we are now in the final segment, which is closing remarks. So with the short time remaining, I wanted to ask each of you if you wanted to share anything that you're drawing, where you're drawing on your reservoirs of hope and inspiration, or if there's anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to make sure to get in and share with, with the activists and donors on the line, you can use that time for your closing remarks. We'll start with you, A.G. Colvin. Well, you know, I am, uh, as I said, cautiously optimistic, and I, I draw on the memory of my dear friend, uh, John Lewis, who passed away this year. Um, he was a man who, through the power of an individual and working with, um, you know, his fellow um, organization members, really changed the face of this nation. I mean, they destroyed an American apartheid system. Uh, and I think, well, if they could do that in, in their time and, and, you know, sacrifice, put their lives on the line, we can handle you know, the things that we are, are facing today. Um, we've got the capacity, if we work together, if we commit ourselves, if we're prepared to sacrifice, you know, to handle whatever gets thrown, whatever gets thrown at us. And this nation has always been on an arc. You know? We're always better now than we were in, in the past. We're not yet where, you know, where we need to be, but if we work at it, if we stay with one another, uh, we can move this nation um, towards you know, th that, that better place, the beloved community is what, uh, you know, John, as John Lewis uh, described it. And so um, I'm urging everybody, you know, ACLU is a great organization. It is a great organization. Uh, th those membership, that numbers that Anthony shared at the beginning, that, that's heartwarming to hear that you got millions of people um, involved now as, uh, as dues paying members. Um, the, the ACLU has been the backbone of positive change in this country for years. But, you know, we got to remember, prom, you know, positive change isn't promised. It only happens when people commit themselves um, to it. So use the ACLU, use other organizations to do it, and we'll get to that better place. I promise. Oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm like, I, my earworms are singing. I'm so excited <laughs> by that, by that message. Anthony, I'm going to ask you to hold one minute on your um, closing remarks, because we do have one last special video. 
So it's not so much for you, Anthony, or you, HD Holder, but more for the audience. This message was specifically created and captured yesterday to offer a boost of encouragement and recognition of the important role that you all in this audience today play in the work. It's me, Debbie Kamal Bell. I'm the ACLU Celebrity Ambassador for Racial Justice. Once again, it's weird that they consider me to be a celebrity. And I've been working with the ACLU since, I think, 2013. I know it was way before the ACLU was cool, since way back in the day of seven years ago. But doesn't seven years ago seem like it was a long time ago now? I'm not going to ask you how you're doing. One, because this is a recording on video, so that would be weird because you, I can't hear you. But also, I know it's not time to ask how you're doing. It's time to commend you for what you're doing, which is mean you're doing the big work. You're out there in the field. You're in those real streets and in those Internet streets, rescuing democracy and stopping the tide of fascism. And I know you're tired. I know you're filled with anxiety. And I know it's confusing to try to sort out the real news from the news about flies on landing on people's heads. But I know you're out there doing the big work. And I know you're encouraging people to make voting plans and encouraging people to expand our liberty. And I want to thank you for that. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my two-year-old daughter who doesn't even know any of this is happening, but she does know to wear a mask because she's smart. But anyway, do the big work. I know it's hard. When voting day comes, we will figure out what happens then. And once we know, we will take a breath and then get right back to doing the work. It's me, Debbie Kamal. All right, Anthony, a few words from you in closing remarks before I give the final I thing. thought this was my show. How do you get to follow Kamal Bell? That's really a setup. Uh, I would just say this. Um, I'll give two closing thoughts uh, to remark more personally. I, I think of election day, I think of my dad, my father. Um, it was election day 1991, and he was lying, dying in a hospital bed. He would die on December 10th of 1991. We were all by his bed and we knew he was not going through. And my grandma said to me, Antonio, that's what she called me. They never called me Anthony. They couldn't pronounce Anthony. Antonio, take me to boat. I'm like, Abuela, it's daddy's dying. She goes, your daddy's gonna be okay for a couple hours. Take me to boat. And my grandmother, when she asked you twice, you didn't say no. So I took her to boat. And this is Southern Florida where they live in. So we went to the voting booth. And uh, we get there, and I'm angry because I'm 25 years old and this is my pop. And I'm taking my grandmother to vote, who's driving me crazy. And I asked for the Spanish ballot, and they don't have it. And I know that Southern Florida was covered by the Voting Rights Act, the bilingual provisions of the Voting Rights Act. And they did not have it in English, in Spanish. They had it only in English. So I go postal, like a young Stanford graduate, I get aggressive. And then they led me into the voting booth with my grandma. And I started reading to her governor. And she was, I am Antonio, all the Democrats, all the Democrats. And then we went back to the hospital. And I think about voting, I think about how in that moment where it was really hard for my grandma to leave my dad to go vote. It's just like, that's what we have to remember. That's what's at stake. Somehow my grandmother, who didn't even speak English, and I don't know if she read or wrote. She never graduated high school. She worked for the factory line in the Bronx. That's what voting meant to her. And that's what we're fighting for. And I'll say this, that I am just so thrilled to be part of a movement of institutions and leaders that are part of this. 
we can't do it alone. The ACLU is great. I'm glad the folks on the line are helping me, but they need to help more than us. It takes the work of Attorney General Holder. It takes the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. It takes the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. It takes the Lawyers Committee. It takes DEMOS. It takes the Brennan Center. It takes a whole village to protect this democracy. So for the folks on the line who are able to help us, help us and help others, because we can't do it alone and just for everyone's sake, for my grandma and for everybody's sake, let's do what we can. Thank you, Attorney General. It is, you have lifted my spirits, which was a definitely necessary piece. I didn't know if I could get through the election. And if I, and if I start flagging again next week, I just might call you to give me that pep talk again. I'll give you the soundbite that I collected from this. Um, with all that's left uh, to do, I did want to give a special shout out to Jason, who has been our ASL interpreter through this entire program. And that is important. And thank you for that, Jason. Um, and I did want to thank you, A.G. Holder, and you, Anthony. It's been an honor to moderate this discussion between the both of you. And I wanted to give a special thanks to the ACLU community of supporters for joining today. We are so grateful to you as donors and activists, as partners and part of the solution. This is a fight to save our democracy. We will not back down. We are so grateful for your stalwart support and activism. Together, we are an undeniable and unstoppable force for good. We've been listening to a rebroadcast of a town hall held by the ACLU on October 14, 2020. The main speakers in this broadcast were Anthony D. Romero, Executive Director of the ACLU, and Eric H. Holder, Jr., former U.S. Attorney General under the Obama administration. Again, the Alliance Party After Dark would like to emphasize that the ACLU in no way is associated with the Alliance Party, and the rebroadcast of this town hall is not to be interpreted as any endorsement of the Alliance Party by the ACLU. Further, any views expressed by the ACLU in this podcast in no way is related to views, similar or otherwise, expressed by the Alliance Party. In short, this has simply been a rebroadcast of content originally broadcast by the ACLU and nothing more. If you would like more information on the ACLU, please visit their website at aclu.org. Again, that's aclu.org. And thank you for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week will bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Also, keep in mind that the podcast has a Twitter page at Alliance On Air. And if you have any suggestions for future topics or people we might want to interview in a future podcast, please drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. Content for the town hall portion of this podcast is copyright the ACLU. Content for the remaining portion of this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. 
Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.